Hi everyone, welcome back to the Brown Girl White Coat Podcast. This is your co-host Alana and I'm so happy that you're joining me today. This episode concludes the first week of March, which is kind of insane because I feel like I'm still processing last March and I am not completely sure that we're really in 2021, am I right? Um, for anyone who is, you know, grieving the loss of loved ones from this pandemic or finally starting to get back into the swing of things after, you know, a full year of essentially being locked down, I am sending you love, I am sending you peace. My mantra for the last couple days has been, I am at peace. So at the conclusion of my yoga practices or when I'm trying to fall asleep, I'll just repeat that to myself and it's something that's been really important to me. So if you need a breather, I'd like to invite you to take one with me. So if you're holding on to any tension, relax your jaw and take a deep breath in and out. Again, I'm sending you love and peace in every aspect of your life, wherever you need it. Please reach out to me if you need anything. And I'm hoping that we can move into the rest of this year with positive intent, good attitudes, positive outlook, just to really try and make the most of your current situation. So in lieu of all of that, <laughs> I'm super excited about today's episode because I get to probe into the mind of my incredible mentor, Dr. Ike Okulosa. He is an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology specialist is both an assistant professor of cardiology and the assistant dean of medical education, all at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. If you don't know where Northwestern is, it is a university in Chicago. Um, Dr. Ike also helped me conduct a research project on pulmonary hypertension and cardiac transplant outcomes. And we basically explored a bunch of data on two portions of pulmonary hypertension, pulmonary vascular resistance, known as PVR, and pulmonary arterial systolic pressure. And my project focused on the latter, which is also called PASP. And we decided to figure out, you know, how does this pressure impact transplant outcomes? So if you're interested in looking into that research, I do have a published abstract in the Journal of Cardiac Failure. And God willing, the manuscript will be accepted and we can go from there. But if you want to check out what we've done thus far, um, the link is in my bio on Instagram. So Dr. O, thank you so much for your unwavering support and guidance and just being an awesome mentor because a lot of people don't have a strong mentor and you have really changed the way that I look at medicine, the way that I conduct myself as a person, as a researcher, as a student, and it has gone a lot farther than you think it has. So thank you. Again, everyone, I hope you enjoy this podcast. I'm sure you're going to learn a lot about the field of cardiology and I hope you enjoy. All right. Hello, Dr. Okuosa. Thank you so much for joining us on the Brown Girl White Coat podcast today. How are you, Alana? This is a privilege to be on your show. Thank you so much. I'm doing excellent, doing excellent. So would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Aiko Kosa. I'm an advanced heart failure transplant cardiologist at Northwestern um, University. Um, one of my specialties beyond or within the realm of heart failure are infiltrative and inflammatory diseases such as 
cardiac amyloid and um, cardiac sarcoidosis. Um, I'm also an assistant professor and assistant dean of medical education. Um, originally from Los Angeles, California, and you know, bearing the cold in Chicago currently. Jeez, I can only imagine. Are you guys getting snow right now? No, we're just getting cold. We got hammered with snow earlier this week. Okay. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Nashville got hit by like four inches of snow and the whole city shut down. Awesome, awesome. Thank you for your introduction. So first, I think we're going to do something called setting the record straight, which is where I give you three phrases or three terms and you either debunk them or clarify them or tell me whether you agree or disagree. Is that okay? Okay. Okay, so number one, internal medicine is the default specialty for those who can't decide on a specialty. False. Okay. So can I, do I go into the detail? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. So, I mean, internal medicine is very broad and it's the mother of almost all subspecialties. And, you know, some people just can't decide whether they want to focus in just on the heart or whether they just want to focus in on um, the GI system or the hematologic system. But, you know, to be an internist, it's not a default. It's actually a lot of responsibility because you're quarterbacking everything. You have to have a good fund of knowledge of almost every um, specialty because everything comes to you. The majority of heart failure patients who are managed in this country are managed by primary care, internal uh, medicine physicians. So is it the default? Absolutely not. I have heard a lot of people kind of talking down on internal medicine a lot in terms of like fields and I've never really understood why because internists are very necessary for like 90% of people who have you know you go to the doctor you see either a family physician or an internist so I completely agree internists are brilliant uh, physicians and I think a lot of it or a lot of the negativity comes in the fact that it's a thinking man's um, um, profession Mm -hmm. it's not something that you're going to get instant um, gratification you're not going to heal diabetes with a knife um, internists actually are thinking about things, strategizing um, how the patient's outcomes are going to be. So, you know, I can see where some of the negativity comes from, but if they actually understand what the internists are doing, they'll respect them. Definitely requires a higher level of complex thinking. Okay, number two, um, <laughs> people can be too young to worry about heart disease and heart failure. That's false as well. And, you know, when I was a fellow about two or three years ago, there was a patient who was about 28 years old who had a heart attack. And heart attacks are coronary disease, blockages in your coronary. So, you know, sometimes we are born with the genes um, that put you at risk. That's something that you can't control. That's like giving someone a loaded gun, but your behaviors actually decide whether you're going to pull the trigger um, and manifest the, the complications associated with the disease. And with regards to heart failure, not at all either. Now, when young people do get heart failure, again, it's something that's typically out of their controls, whether it's genetic or whether it's myocarditis, inflammation, inflammation that's acquired, but you're never too young um, to start thinking about these things. Yeah, it's all about prevention, right? I know that um, heart failure is kind of stereotyped on TV and you know, in television shows that it's like old rich white men who eat a lot and that those are the only people that can kind of get affected or women can't get affected. And that's just, that's just not true. Correct, because it comes in all flavors and it hits all comers. Exactly, exactly. 
And finally, number three, <laughs> deep dish pizza is superior to all other pizza. <laughs> That's a preference thing. And again, I'm from Los Angeles. When I first came to Chicago, it was a big rave. And you go to Gino Izzy's or Giordano's and you get this deep dish. To me, it's like, who eats pizza with a fork and knife? Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't so, see the hype. Some people see the hype. I don't see the hype. Uh, but, you know, I'll keep my opinions to myself, especially being in Chicago. Gotcha. 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 Don't want any negative feedback. Okay. So before we get into kind of the thick of the interview, um, what is something that you keep in your white coat at all times? What do I keep in my white coat at all times? My stethoscope, for one, being a cardiologist, that is the mainstay and the most important diagnostic tool that I have. Um, what else? The other thing is my lapel pins, because okay. I think my patients kind of get to, well, my patients see me as the physician, right? But you get a little bit of personalization when you look at my lapel pins, and it shows you where I'm from and the types of things that I do enjoy. And you'll see my Dodger pin, you'll see my Oakland or Las Vegas Raider pin, um, and also the Los Angeles Lakers pin. And, you know, I had a Kobe Bryant pin at one point, too. That is absolutely awesome. I do think that pins can kind of speak volumes before, you know, somebody looks at you, they make a first impression before you even say anything. So having a little yeah. bit of representation, is that's pretty cool. Plus, it allows the patients to find something that they want, because the patients want to bond with you, right? And they're in a vulnerable period when they're in that room and you're talking to them about heart failure. But regardless of what you say, they still want to be able to bond with you and trust you. And they can look at your code and be like, okay, that guy with the funny name also, also likes things that I like as well. So, yeah. Right. I completely, completely agree. It's all about, I know the level of comfortability can change when you can relate to a person or I guess when a patient can relate to you. So it probably makes them more open and honest about what exactly they're dealing with and, you know, feeling Agreed. safe. Okay. So uh, kind of getting into the medical aspect of your life, did you have any aha moment that made you want to pursue medicine? Not an aha moment uh, per se. It was more so, you know, I was in the hospital a lot when I was young and, you know, I saw a lot of orthopedic surgeons and I always thought that, you know what, these surgeons or these doctors were the type of people who dealt with everything, you know, because you're a little kid. You know, I was between medicine and wanted to be an airline pilot, but then the teacher told me that I could not be a pilot. So I said, hey, I'm going to be a doctor then, forget it. So that was the moment in which I decided that, yeah, this is what I'm going to be in a position. Wow. Okay. Okay. It's interesting. Everybody's got kind of a different walk of life that brings them into what uh, choosing this career and this incredible profession. So where did you attend medical school? So I went to Georgetown University School of Medicine in DC. Okay, and why did you choose Georgetown? So, you know, George, well, one, I'm a Catholic, and two, Georgetown, the philosophy of Georgetown was cure personalis, which is basically you cure the, or you take care of the entire patient, right? It's not just the disease, it's the patient. That philosophy in of itself was enough to draw me uh, to Georgetown. And Georgetown has a strong um, history of producing excellent physicians. And, you know, all of that was just made it easy. I can, I can only imagine. So you did mention that you're a Catholic. Do you think that they put an emphasis on Catholicism and medicine or bridging the gap between faith and medicine or faith and science? You mean at Georgetown? Yes. You know, it's interesting because despite 
the fact that it's a Jesuit institution, there wasn't a lot with regards to the overlay of uh, religion and the practice of medicine. You know, there's certain things that just don't happen on the campus of Georgetown, but in terms of the medical education, there wasn't a lot of, um, of Catholicism or Jesuit um, belief. You know, you, you got the science um, and there was a lot of ethics um, that were introduced pretty much. Um, so after med school, where, did you do anything between residency? Did you take a research year or did you jump straight in? No, I jumped straight in. It was, I was ready to go. Yeah. So I did a career for cardiology. I can only imagine. So where did you go to school for residency? I went to Northwestern Memorial um, Hospital for residency. And the reason I chose Northwestern, and you know, my, my story is I'm from LA and everyone who's from LA always says that they're going to go back to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And that was the game plan for me. But I applied to about 17 programs for internal medicine, which is perhaps is a lot of programs. Um, the majority were in California. Um, and only two were not in California. That was Northwestern and Georgetown. And Georgetown wow. was my home institution. So I had a dream school. UCLA had always been my dream school, but it's also my nemesis. Okay. UCLA rejected me for they rejected me for medical school, and even for residency, they rejected me. So then, you know, interviewing at Northwestern, seeing the facilities and what the program had to offer, where they were sending all of their um, residents, it just made the decision easy to make that my number one choice. Okay. That, that's awesome. So how did you kind of deal? I know the match is what every kind of medical student is waiting for. And it kind of, a lot of people think that it determines your fate as a physician. Um, how did you kind of deal with that? Well, you know, the match is the match, right? It's, it's a confusing type of system, but I guess it's meant for equity um, and it's crazy process. But you decide on a program that's best for you, right? And there's a lot of programs that have great names, but it may not be where you belong, per se. The culture of the program may not fit you. It may not have the uh, people in place that are going to, um, you know, set you up in the right position. Because you're going to get great training any place in this country. Um, Internal medicine is where I trained in. You're going to get great internal medicine anywhere in this country. Now, in terms of you thriving, because residency is hard, intern year is hard. Um, you just want to make sure that you go to a place where you feel like, you know, I'm going to do well here. They have people who can mentor me or the, the culture, the environment. This is something that I'm going to thrive in. So taking all of that into account, that's how I uh, easily settled on Northwestern. Yeah. And Northwest, Northwestern is obviously an incredible school. So it's not like you had, you know, two options that you weren't really looking forward to, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, okay, so this might be kind of like a silly question, but I've always why do cardiologists have to specialize in internal medicine prior to studying cardiology in a fellowship? So I think it's important. Well, for one, all of the um, subspecialties, whether it's um, GI, hematology, endocrinology, mm-hmm. infectious disease, nephrology, they're all subsets or subspecialties of internal medicine. So that makes it inherent. But the most important thing is a good cardiologist or a good specialist is also a good internist because you look at the disease, you can't look at heart failure or coronary disease in isolation, right? You have to also understand what are the processes that lead to it. Um, for instance, um, someone who's got coronary disease, well, why do they have coronary disease? Well, look at their risk factor profile. 
their blood pressure wasn't controlled or their diabetes wasn't controlled. Or you have somebody who's sent to you just for um, prevention um, consultation, right? And you look at their medical history, you still have to have a good solid understanding of things um, before you can say, okay, yeah, I'm just gonna be a cardiologist who puts balloon pumps in people or puts stents in people or gets cardiac transplants. Like even my transplant patients, you have to have a good understanding of immunology, right? Because of their ability to reject, um, they're at risk for infections. So this is why it's very important to have that solid background. Yeah. So I guess if you, if the students were able to just kind of skip internal medicine and go straight into cardiology, there would be no foundation to kind of build upon. And I think that would change the practice in a drastic way. In my opinion, I think it would be in a negative way. And again, I, I, I strongly believe to be a good or strong cardiologist, you have to have a strong internal medicine background. Ooh, lots of problem solving, lots of putting things together. Um, and finally, where did you attend, or I guess, where did you complete your fellowship training? Yeah, so from Northwestern, I went on to um, Johns Hopkins Hospital to do my um, cardiology fellowship. I did my general cardiology and also did my advanced heart failure um, fellowship there. Wow, that John Hopkins was my, or Johns Hopkins was my dream school for undergrad and they rejected me. <laughs> but I might try again for residency, we'll see. That's, that's awesome. Um, how did you like living in Baltimore? Were you mostly in the hospital all the time or were you able to explore? Baltimore is an interesting city and no offense to anyone who's from Baltimore. Yeah. But I don't even consider Baltimore a city. I think it's a town. It's, it's, it, it was a nice experience. Don't get me wrong. I love the patient population um, in Baltimore. Um, there was a mix. You know, you spend your time in the hospital, um, but you also spend your time trying to recoup and balance is key. And for this is one piece of advice I'll give to your um, to to those who listen to your podcast. Balance is key, and however you define balance. So for me, I tend to be more on, a, on the side of a workaholic. So I spent a vast amount of time as a cardiology fellow. You know, it's a demanding uh, fellowship. You're seeing the sick of the sick. You're on high demand. But at the same time, I balanced it out, trying to find things that I like to do within the city of Baltimore, um, trying to make some friends in that city. Um, so all in all, it was a great experience, um, especially a West Coast person living on the East Coast or what do you want to call it, Mid-Atlantic. Right, right. So do you did you feel like every time that you had to move for each of your steps of your training, you had to kind of start over? Was it a difficult adjustment every time? Uh, not necessarily. It, it was interesting. The first one, when I moved from Los Angeles all the way to D.C., that was brand new, but I did have family in D.C. Okay. Then I moved from, you know, you spend four years in D.C., you, you develop a network, then you go from D.C. to Chicago. And again, I had a cousin who lived in Chicago, but again, you start over. The thing that makes it easy, right, are your co-residents, your co-fellows, because you guys are all in a grind together. So you automatically develop a network, especially if you guys all uh, mesh well. So then making that journey back from Chicago back to the um, East, it wasn't as hard because again, I had spent four um, years in DC and Baltimore and DC are only about 35 miles from each other. So that part wasn't hard. And coming back to Chicago as a faculty member, I already had my roots here. So that didn't make it hard. That's awesome. I think that also kind of tells to the importance of picking an institution that aligns with your values and that will have people that can understand you and know where you're coming from and kind of 
just relate to you. I mean, kind of goes back to the whole patient interaction. You feel more comfortable. You can adjust more accordingly, I guess, when you have people that understand who you are. Okay, so what were, or what would you consider the highs of your residency and fellowship programs? Or maybe not program, just experience. Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, you know, what's in residency, you can always remember the first time that you had to run a code um, for the first time, or the first time that you put on a white coat, the long white coat, and people identified you as doctor, um, or the many friends that you made uh, that became lifelong friends um, during your intern, your class that followed you all throughout all of residency. Um, awards are awards. Uh, I think we all win awards. Um, and then with regards to like fellowship, again, I remember this one interesting encounter where there's a patient in complete heart block, unstable. I've never put in a temporary pacemaker in my life. And my attending is driving in and he's instructing me over the phone and everything works out well. So th those are some of the moments, but I think the big, probably the biggest thing is the growth that you see, right? You go from being a fourth year medical student thinking that you know everything to realizing you don't know anything to overcoming those pits and valleys. And now you are a team leader and the same process goes through again in fellowship. When you're a hotshot third year who matched at a top cardiology fellowship program and then you realize, well, I don't know that much about cardiology. And then you go through the pits and valleys and then you come back on top realizing that, you know what, the process actually works and you're going to come out on top. So that was a long roundabout answer to say there's a lot of highs in both the residency yeah. and fellowship. Definitely something to look forward to. And now as like a little bit of a contrast, what do you think was the most challenging or what were the lowest points of your medical training? I think the big, that, that one's an easier question to answer. It's overcoming um, imposter syndrome, right? And, you know, whether, I, I think us who are underrepresented minorities who are in medicine, regardless of what aspect or where you find yourself, imposter syndrome somehow creeps in, right? And you have to understand that you worked hard. You belong where you are. You are um, meant to be where you are. And that's the thing. I think I always had to overcome that in every area, whether it was medical school, whether it was residency, even fellowship um, as well. And then there's some aspects, even when you become faculty that, hey, yeah, don't, don't doubt yourself. You are meant to be here. So that was the, the big thing. Gotcha. I know imposter syndrome kind of plagues all medical students and all just people in kind of professional workplace settings, I guess, because you're kind of forced to compare yourself to all these incredible and brilliant people surrounding you. And it makes you feel lesser than or maybe less worthy or I don't know, maybe more full of doubt. And I've definitely experienced that as well, which is kind of a crappy feeling, but it is a crappy feeling, but it goes back to that um, that philosophy. You should never compare yourself. Comparison always steals joy, right? Because you and I could compare. I can compare myself to you, and we are several years apart, right? But mm -hmm. one accomplishment that you have over me, I got rejected when I applied to Mahari. Mahari rejected me, okay. and Mahari accepted you. So already, you got a leg up on me. So there we go. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Okoisa. Um, So kind of talking about comfortability in the workplace have you ever dealt with 
um, any racism or prejudice as a physician or throughout your training? Uh, the answer to that one is yes. Um, I mean, I can give you several examples. But I'll just give one, one, one interesting one. This was when I was a medical student at Georgetown. I was a third year um, and we rotate through several hospitals at Georgetown. Um, this one in particular, I just remember getting onto the elevator and there was a woman um, who was on the elevator as well. And, you know, she asked me if I was part of the, the word she used was help. And, you know, I looked at my white coat and I looked at my white coat where it says medical student. And I just looked at her and said, no. And I walked up the elevator. Um, I've experienced it and you you continue to experience it. And it's the unfortunate thing for us in our, um, in this day and age. Have you felt that it has ever kind of impacted the way that you see treating your patients who might be less thankful or hoping that they have maybe a white doctor or maybe a white doctor or just a different physician? No, because you got to also remember why you're there, right? And then you also remember those who came before you um, for the opportunity that you have. It doesn't, you know, as a minority um, physician, a lot of times we have to either suffer in silence or we brush things off or, um, you know, we ignore it or just take it as is. This is what it's like. You know, I think for me, it's only made me a stronger physician. Um, my skin is thick as you don't know what. But here's an interesting thing, right? It's not only white patients uh, who have these um, impressions, right, that a white doctor is superior. When I did, I had a continuity clinic on the south side of Chicago and, you know, we worked with a white physician and we saw his patients, but some of our black uh, patients were like, well, where's the white doctor? So it happens on both way, both sides, perhaps not to the same extent, um, but, you know, I've seen it from both sides. That's really surprising to hear. I mean, I personally haven't experienced that from any um, black or patients of color. They're usually like, oh, look at that. We love seeing like a black woman in medicine. And that has got to be a little bit baffling to see, you know, people from your a community that you relate to thinking that you're less capable or less experienced. Um, okay, enough about the negative stuff. Um, can you tell us about an experience that you've had that kind of really solidified that there is an art to medicine? It's like every encounter that you have with a patient, you know, there's a science, but there's also you. And I try to tell the medical students this, that you're going to encounter several physicians and you're going to take the good and the bad from each physician. Um, you're going to say, you know, that's not what I want in my practice or that person is who I want to emulate um, my practice now to be like. But I think the part for me that shows the art of medicine or like more so the humanity of medicine is anytime I have the opportunity to tell someone that they're getting a heart transplant, right? You walk into the room and, you know, either I'll start it with a joke with the patients because those patients have been waiting for a while um, mm -hmm. as they're waiting for a transplant. And my thing with the residents is I need a joke of the day for them. And we'll start off with a joke. And then, you know, we tell them, I have a heart for you. And then it's always the same thing. There's a pause. Then there's, you're kidding. Then there's a pause. And then there's tears. And then there's laughter. And, you know, these are the moments that shows you that it's not just a science. There is the art, there's the humanism aspect of medicine. And that's the part that, that just keeps us going because as heart failure physicians, you know, we see the other end where our patients are dying because of heart failure. And you have to have that discussion on the other end with the family members, letting them know that their family member is about to die. And that 
comes back to the humanism. And it's something that really can't be taught is what's intrinsic in it with each and every one of us. And we all have our own different styles. So would you say that in your profession, you have to deal with death pretty commonly? Yeah, um, especially with heart failure um, and especially dealing with patients who come in with cardiogenic shock. And, you know, this is why I advocate strongly that those who are upcoming and training that you take care of yourself as well. The profession of medicine is always going to take from you. It's a great profession. It's a noble profession, but it will always take from you. You have to make sure that you seek out balance for yourself, because if you allow the profession to take from you, then you're not going to have anything else for yourself. You're going to find yourself down. You're going to find yourself depressed. You're going to find yourself wanting to get out of the profession. But find something that gives you some form of balance, whether you're a person who wants to just Netflix and binge, eat ice cream on your couch, whatever, do that. But for the most part, that you find balance. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that I'm a little bit afraid of is I've seen and heard a lot of horror stories about people who feel numb when they move into medicine, because even though medicine is a very fulfilling profession, it's also filled with a lot of sadness and negative emotion. And I don't want to kind of move into a place where I feel like I can't kind of bounce back. Yeah, and You know, it's, it's always a challenge, but that's why it's important um, that you have your support system as well. You're going to be the support system for your patients, but you as a physician need to understand that um, you need a support system. I think the one thing that COVID um, was able to unmask or, or, or reveal was the need for every physician to have a village. Because for the first time, you know, we were going to work thinking that, man, there's a possibility that I might get sick and die. And this is why it's important that you have that village um, that you can rely on, that you can actually unload on and not carry all the stress and burden for yourself. So what do you find the most interesting about heart transplantation? Uh, the most interesting part is, one, you're giving patients a second chance, right? So these are patients who, whether it's because of um, heart failure symptoms, uh, that they're getting heart, heart transplants or uh, life-threatening arrhythmias, but you're giving them a, a second chance at at the possibility of being normal, right? Instead of being full of fluid or unable to walk 50 feet because you're short of breath, unable to participate in the um, activities with your kids, you're giving people the opportunity to, you know, hit that restart button and do it all over again. But it's also the gift of life um, that the donor family has started, basically has bestowed upon um, somebody in need. So that whole process is the most interesting aspect for me. That's got to really get your emotions brewing when, I mean, one, you walk into the room, you fill them with all this joy, tell them, hey, like I have a heart for you. And then the family, I'm not really sure how a lot of families deal with a piece of their loved one moving into the life of another person, but hopefully for the most part, it feels rewarding or they feel, I don't know, full. You know, I've only interacted with a handful of um, donor families and they feel a sense of joy that their loved one has gone on to, um, you know, their loved one, when they last saw their loved one, their loved one was dying, right? And was in a tragic state. And to see that a piece of their loved one has gone on to help multitudes of people um, to live on, to live regular lives. It's always like a joyful interaction when I met the handful of donor families. That's really reassuring. That is, that's great. Um, okay, so as the Assistant Dean of Medical Education at Northwestern, how did you get involved in academia? Well, that came with um, 
coming back to Northwestern as a faculty uh, member. And one of my roles, one of my academic roles was to be a, what we call a college mentor. And that's why I'm responsible for 20 um, students in the class of 2022. And, you know, from the work that was done there, you know, got the opportunity to become an assistant dean and to continue to further student support. And I think that's the biggest thing because, you know, we've been through it. Um, I've been through medical school. I've been through residency. I've been through fellowship. And now to be given the opportunity to help students achieve their hopes and dreams, um, this is an opportunity that I'm just very thankful for. Yeah, that's got to be incredible. Um, Dr. Ike hosted me on with some of his, I think they were high school, these were high schoolers, not um, college students on the Zoom call that we were on. He's got a bunch of young people looking up to him and interested in medicine and inspiring them. And it's just, it's really fulfilling to see so many young people of color wanting to move into STEM and wanting to move into this incredible field of medicine that we're in. I'm totally appreciative to you and um, Garen as well for being on that um, Zoom call because, you know, just being present makes a difference, right? If you look at the, the, the statistics of um, minorities in medicine, it's pretty atrocious. And a lot of it has to do, one, I mean, you know, the systemic barriers that are out there, then you have STEM curriculum, um, that's also a barrier. But disbelief in oneself, right? Because you don't see many that look like you who have actually achieved um, what you want to achieve. So sometimes you feel that it may not be possible. But being able to see you, being able to see Garen and um, hearing your stories of how you guys got to where you were, I think that made a huge difference uh, with those students. I'm happy to hear that. I'm definitely happy to hear that. Um, Another thing that I wanted to bring up was um, Dr. O helped me formulate a research project and publish an abstract. And can you guys, can you give our listeners any tips on getting involved in research? Yeah. So, you know, getting into research is easy, right? You just ask, you find a mentor who's doing research and then you get into it. But I don't advise doing it that way. I advise getting into a project that you're interested in, because if it's something that you're not interested in, it's just going to be work. And if it's just work, you may not be able to put your best in it because it's not what excites you or whatnot. When I started doing research, I didn't do research as a um, medical student. I started doing research primarily um, as a resident. You know, I looked around to see what people were doing. There was an interesting project looking at NBA players and um, echocardiograms. So I jumped on that project. Then, you know, I got a data set and then I started asking my own questions. And when I started asking my own questions, you know, you still need a you still need a mentor to help guide you because the questions you may have have been asked before, and someone can help bring out the nuances. Um, but once I started getting that under control and understanding the type of questions and understanding the statistics and the models, then it really started making um, research more interesting to me. And now, whenever I have um, young learners and young mentees. I try to find projects that one would be um, able to be utilized by um, other physicians, but also that's interesting. Like I have a mentee who's doing social media and cardiovascular risk factors. I have a mentee who's looking at um, marijuana and cardiovascular disease. So interesting topics um, that are going to be um, utilized by other physicians as well. So find something that's interesting to you. Don't get on a research project just for the sake of getting on a research project. That is excellent advice. I got, I worked in a lab um, in undergrad and 
I loved the research, but the work really felt like work and it didn't feel like fun. So if you take anything away from this podcast, please pursue something that you enjoy. Absolutely. <laughs> now, do you find it difficult to balance research, academia, and practicing medicine? Uh, no, not for me. I mean, my plate is full as is. And I always wonder where do I actually find extra time to do things. But the way that I always see it, I'm a clinician first. I take care of patients first. That's my first responsibility. Then my second um, responsibility is to the School of Medicine and, um, you know, students and um, faculty affairs. And then third comes my research. So it goes in that order uh, where it's patient care first, um, then academic um, student affairs. And then when I have time when I find my windows that I take the opportunity to, to knock out some research uh, projects. So you did mention earlier that it's important to set aside time for things that you do enjoy. And I know your time is limited, but what do you like to do when you aren't stuck in the clinic or doing your obligations? I love sleeping. Okay. <laughs> That's my thing. Sleep. No, I'm kidding. Um, you know, I'm a big sports fan and I find my, um, my ability to recharge during sports season, especially with the Raiders. The Raiders are my team. Um, you know, being able to hang out with my friends as well, um, family, whenever I get the opportunity to um, see my family. Um, but that's what my balance looks like. Everyone, like I said, some people think balance is going to be 50-50, but it's all individual, uh, individualized. Whereas balance for me is going to be maybe 70% worth 30% fun time, happy time. Uh, but it's going to be recovering with sleep, um, sports, family, and friends thereafter. Gotcha. Hopefully, I, there's a Lakers game tonight, I believe. So hopefully you find some time to recharge. And catch the game. Yeah, go Lakers. Yeah, exactly. champions. Exactly. Okay, so we're kind of starting to come to the end of the podcast. And this question is more for me. Um, I'm starting my clerkship a month and two days from today. And do you have any experience um, being an attending with medical students on your service? Yeah. Those are the fun ones when I had medical students. Yeah. And it, it's my teaching style is I always teach from the bottom up. And, you know, when you see the medical students, you also see a bit of yourself, right? And you see yourself when you were um, up and coming. And you, you see the opportunity now to start to model the future of medicine by imparting a bit of yourself. So my style of teaching is I never... Um, question my senior residents or my fellows on rounds. I always question those at the lower end, that's the medical students and the interns. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all the questions come to you and the questions are not meant for you to feel bad. If you get it wrong, you get it wrong, whatever. Because if, you, if you're gonna get every question right, you weren't meant to be, you know, you're not supposed to be a student. This whole process of, of um, medical school is four years for a reason. So I bombard you guys with questions. And again, it's just to instill into you guys um, the fundamentals of certain things. And, you know, as we are questioning you guys and as we are teaching you guys, you know, some may feel bad, some may feel inadequate, but, you know, once we recognize it, it's our goal to try to build you up and let you understand this is part of the process of becoming a doctor. So you are one of the so-called quote unquote pimpers is what a lot of people like to call them. So when we say pimp, it means please improve my performance. Yes. Uh, okay. That's, wow. That's actually, I, that's actually, that's a good comeback. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. So how, 
or in what ways are med students the most helpful to you? And what do you wish that we would avoid and stop doing? To me, you know, med students have more time than anyone on the team, right? So you guys have time to talk to the patients beyond what I can talk to the patients. When I'm on service, I have about 20 some of my patients, med students have two. So you can see the amount of time that you have to dedicate to talk to a patient. Um, so utilizing that, getting a little bit more information, making a patient, because being a patient is scary. It's lonely at times too. So just going above and beyond and um, knowing everything about your patient. The one thing I want students from, I mean, learners from all aspects, because it's not only the medical students, it's the interns, it's the residents, and some fellows do this. It's when they come up with a plan, they say, I think, or maybe, or um, if you want to. No, this is your plan. This is your opportunity. This is what you want to do. And if I agree with you, I agree with you. If I disagree with you, then I disagree with you. And just because I disagree with a student does not mean that they're completely wrong. It's just the, the path to the goal is not the same, right? But there's multiple paths. If you look at the mathematical derivation to four, right? You can, you can ask, or this is what I ask all my um, learners, give me a way to get to four mathematically. Some may say eight divided by two. Some may say four times one. Someone may say three plus one. Different paths gets you to the same goal, but I chose one path. So in short, own your patient, know your patient, and be the doctor. This is your opportunity. Thank you. I will definitely bring that knowledge with me and that advice with me when I'm scrambling through the hospital. <laughs> okay, so I understand that all medical programs have to take boards to move into the residency programs, but can you tell us about board certifications once you're within your specialty? Yeah, so a lot of them are different. Like the surgical um, boards, anesthesia boards, internal medicine boards are different. Because with anesthesia and surgery, there's an oral component to their boards. Whereas with internal medicine, it's just uh, uh, one day and then, you know, you just answer all the questions that are there. But every, like you mentioned, every um, subspecialty or every medical specialty, you have to take your board certification to prove um, that you have the knowledge base, the fundamentals to practice um, in a specialty. Now, the way that the recertification has been changing it's different as well because um, in the past it would be a test you take every 10 years now there's a lot of mini tests that you can take in the intervals and that way you can maintain your certification and even within internal medicine they're looking at the point that it could just be your terminal boards because if you can imagine i took internal medicine i took cardiology and i take i've taken heart failure boards now if i need to recertify every single one of them every 10 years is three boards and it can also be expensive too. So but that's the process in terms of the board certification. All right. So finishing up here, um, I've got two more questions. One is what do you feel is your biggest accomplishment? That's a good question. Um, I would say getting into medical school that I would say is the biggest accomplishment. There was a lot of um, hurdles that were in place. Some of, I mean, the majority I probably put on myself, but Getting into medical school was my biggest accomplishment, in my opinion. That's awesome, because look at you now. And the second one is, what did I miss that you'd like to talk about or teach our learners before we conclude this episode? Uh, you know, I think you were pretty much all-encompassing. Um, this is a good outlet and a good resource, especially for those who are pre-med and those who are um, in medical school and they just want to hear from someone who's um, on the same pathway as them. 
But I think the biggest thing is, look, you've gotten this far. You can do it for those who are in medical school or those who are in training. And for those who are um, who have ambitions of becoming doctors, if I can do it, you can do it. And, you know, just don't doubt yourself. Don't doubt um, your skill set and understand that medicine is hard. The path to medicine is hard, but it's not impossible. And if anyone else can do it, you certainly could do it. That is great advice. Thank you so much, Dr. Ike, for joining us on this episode. Really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope that everybody learned a lot. Well, thank you for having me. And I do have one thing for you. We, one of our papers just got accepted, so you add another publication to your your CV. Congrats. I, you know, what's funny. I saw the email two days ago, and I was like, mm, maybe this. I don't. Maybe this was a mistake. And now, but this is excellent news. Well, congrats again. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. So what did you guys think about the episode? I hope you absolutely loved it. Um, If you're still listening, this is kind of a goodie for the full all the way through listeners. Um, If you share one of my any of my Instagram posts to your story that you like and tag me in it with something you learned on this episode and I will enter you in a drawing to win something like a little surprise um remember if you don't tag me i won't be able to see it so thank you guys again for supporting our podcast this means way more to us than you know um feel free to tell us what you love and also what we can improve by leaving a review on your listening platform or sending a dm to our instagram at brown girl white coat pod the goodness in me honors the goodness in you find a way to find some peace this week take care